Well, I'm curious uh, how many of you, uh, and remember this is a safe place, so it's okay to admit it. How many of you have ever gotten your car stuck in the snow before? Show of hands, okay. Oh, dang. Okay, maybe I should say this isn't a safe space because that was a lot of people. Uh, about this time last year, um, I, uh, we were having one of those like rare, like lots of snow, snowstorms, like, you know, and the great thing about living in Illinois is when they say this is what the weather is going to be, all you have to say is no, it's not because it's going to change by the time that comes around, right? And uh, so, but we were getting one of those where it was actually like inches upon inches of snow and it, we had a break before it was supposed to start again. And I went to the freezer and, and I pulled it open and to my dismay, we were out of ice cream. And so I turned to my wife and I said, Diana, um, we cannot weather this storm if we're out of ice cream. So I'm going to take one for the team and head out. And she says, okay. And so I get on my boots, get on my jacket. And she like didn't think I was serious. I said, no, I'm, I'm really doing this. I said, I've got like this 30 minute window to get, it, to get out or get back. It's like, we need this. Like we cannot survive without this. And, and she looks at me. And the one thing she says, she says, just, says, just don't get stuck. And I said, stuck. I'm a professional driver. I've been doing this since I was like 14. I'm just kidding, 16 years old. And so I, I can do this. And so I run out to the car and, and I back out of the driveway. And for the first time ever, my back tire goes off into the little ditch on the side of our driveway. And so you know that feeling of being stuck and you hit the gas and just, and you go nowhere. And so then I had this brilliant idea. I was like, oh, duh, I know what to do. Let me just back up even more to get momentum to go forward. And so then I backed up even more, another probably two feet, got some momentum, and then what happened? And so then I sat there for probably like a good five minutes. Do I admit my fault or do I just wait till the next morning and let my wife figure it out later? So finally I called her and I was like, honey, guess what? I am stuck. And she was like, I knew it. I told you so. You're the worst. I was just kidding. She didn't say that. She came out. We got the car out. It was okay. Now, getting stuck is just a part of life, is it not? Like we get literally stuck sometimes. We get stuck in the snow. Maybe as a kid, you stuck your head and got stuck in between some banisters and the fire department had to come, like, cut your head off, to get you out, put it back on type of situation, right? We also get stuck figuratively in other places in life. And maybe that's what you walked in with today. Maybe you feel stuck perhaps in a relationship. You're kind of trying to figure out where does this go from here? How do we make it like it once was? How do we rekindle flames? You just feel kind of stuck. Maybe you feel stuck in a job and you're kind of trying to just determine, well, do, do I wait it out, hope for that promotion? Do I, do I apply for this job over here and find something new? And if you're a person of faith, if, if you're like me, chances are you have been, are, or will be stuck in your faith and walk with Jesus. Stuck is a real natural part of our life, and that's what we're going to kind of talk about this morning, is chances are you are stuck, will be stuck, or have been stuck in your faith, and usually what it takes to get us unstuck is something that we haven't done or tried before, or is it actually the answer we've known all along? Here's my belief, my firm fundamental belief of why we get stuck oftentimes in life, especially in faith, is for this reason, is that we are addicted to trying. I think we live in a culture where, where we are sold to just try everything out for a little bit of time, but we don't actually like to create commitments. 
Like think about it, for example, every single streaming service is gonna offer you a seven day free trial, free of charge, cancel whenever you want. Anything you buy online is gonna give you a 30 day money back trial guarantee. You can try literally anything and everything and we kind of like it, don't we? Because we don't actually have to commit to something. We don't actually have to say on the front end, this is something I'm going to see through the end. And I'm not saying all trials are bad, but I think sometimes we get this idea of trying things on for size. And if the results or the progress or the growth doesn't come immediately, then we say, oh, it's broken. It must not work. It's not my thing, not for me. And so while we are addicted to trying, I think we certainly have a tendency to forget that faith is a commitment. Faith is something we don't just try out, instead we commit to it. And maybe that's where you've been recently in your walk with Jesus, or maybe you're just exploring faith for the first time. I'll tell you up front, it's a commitment thing. It's a daily thing. It's not something where you say, well, I I tried a few prayers and, and God didn't really show up and bless me the way I thought. Or I read a few Bible passages like a week ago and my life hasn't dramatically changed, so God must not love me. No, no, that's, that's the wrong view and approach. We have to leave behind this idea that we can just try faith out and actually receive that transformation. Look what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, there's a couple verses. We'll, we'll pop around to a few different spots. But he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he likens faith to running a race. Okay, now I'm not a runner, I'm not a marathon runner, but I can get the gist from this and perhaps you can too. He says in verse 24, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, which is like, duh, isn't that what a race is? but only one gets the prize. So they don't live in society today where everyone gets a trophy at the end of the race. He's being realistic here, right, okay? He says, run in such a way to get the prize. Run so that you might win. Again, he's using an analogy here. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. On the count of three, everybody say training. One, two, three. Goes into training. They do it to get a crown that will not last but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. The Apostle Paul is a man who understood what it took to commit to faith. And he says, it's like running a race. You can't just show up on race day and hope for the best and expect to win. You can't just try your hardest and expect to walk away with the gold. He says, you must go into strict training in order to receive that prize. Because there's a massive, there's a big monumental difference between training versus trying in life, is there not? You see, trying says, well, fingers crossed, I hope it works out for me, Uh, we'll, we'll see how it goes. But training says the exact opposite. Training says, I have my goal in mind, I have the prize that I want to do, I have the progress, the growth, the success, whatever it is, you fill in the blank with what that is. And training says, I have a strict plan. That no matter what, I must stick to this in order to reach that prize. And we know this applies to a lot of things in life. But it's like what the great Ben Hogan once said. He says, it's an interesting thing. The more I practice, the luckier I get. And so Apostle Paul is making this this bold statement. He says, if you want to be a person of faith, you must commit yourself to strict training, not just trying it on for size. I think we sometimes forget this truth, is that commitment is a recurring event. I think we sometimes forget that the commitment is something that we are called to do over and over and over again. 
give you a few examples, right? Like, if you're saying, hey, I'm trying to change my diet, it's not enough to say, well, I had a salad last week. If you're trying to, to change a relationship, or maybe you and your spouse, you're not seeing eye to eye, it's not enough to say, well, well I told them I loved them on our wedding day, shouldn't that be enough? It's not enough to say, hey, I, 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 I went to the gym like a month ago. Man, I don't know why I'm not getting swole anymore. And we know this to be true of so many things of life. And yet we think we can just try out faith and still get to where we believe God is leading us to be. Well, I went to church a couple months ago. I read my Bible that one time. I used to serve, I used to give, I used to be in a group, but now I'm just kind of going with the motions, trying it out. So do you want to know how to take that step into commitment? I'll give you the answer. It's a very simple answer. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's a very simple answer of how to take a step into a committed life. Are you ready for it? If you're taking notes, write this down. It's going to blow your mind. Here's the answer, is that you need to get to a spot where you give yourself no other choice. If you really want to succeed, you get to a spot where you give yourself no other choice but to arrive at that goal, arrive at that growth, arrive at that destination. You see, what happens is when we live in a state of trial, we keep our options open. When we live in a state of trial, we create fallbacks. We create contingencies. We create all these things that, that if it's not going our way, we have something else to turn to. So then you're like, hey, I really need to get a handle on my diet and stuff. But you keep a box of Snickers and ice cream like I do in the freezer. It's not going to go well for you. Why? Because you've given yourself options. And the same goes with your faith. If you say, I want to be more committed to Jesus this year than I ever have been before. I want to see God do some miraculous things in my life. I want God to use me as a worker for his kingdom ministry. This year, more than any other season of my life, there's some commitments that need to get done. There's some, some things that probably need to change. You see the last thing on your schedule? Or is God the first thing on your schedule? Can you turn off that TV after a couple hours to say, you know what, I need to spend time with God? What's the difference between seeing your desires become actions? What's the difference between your intentions actually becoming follow-through, that motivation you have to change, to grow, to be a different person, to get swole, to lose weight, to get faster, whatever it is, what is the difference from going and having that motivation and that vision and that dream to actually seeing it come to fruition? It's one word. It's one word only. And it's the word commitment. You commit to giving yourself no other choice but to move forward. You commit to giving yourself no other choice to do what you know needs to be done in order to pursue that prize. So that's what we're going to talk about today. That's what we're talking about over the next couple weeks in this series is that I believe that you are somebody who wants to grow in your faith. That's probably why you're here. And some of you, you show up here out of habit. Some of you show up out of commitment. Others of you, you found yourself in a church for the first time possibly ever or in a very long time. I believe that every single one of you here, everyone watching online, everybody over in our, our campus in Urbana, 
If you are here, it's because you are trying to figure out what is my next step? How do I grow? What does Jesus look like in my life? In order for us to arrive there, I think all of us need to get to a point where we give ourselves no other choice but to see that growth come to fruition. So what do Julius Caesar, Hernan Cortez, Alex Honnold, and Jesus' disciples all have in common? That's a trick question because most of you are like, I don't even know who half those people are. Is they all had a moment in which their success or their growth all came because they gave themselves no other choice. Let's start with Julius Caesar. In the year 49 BCE, Julius Caesar was just one of the Caesars. He was one of the emperors in Rome. And Rome was what was called a Roman collective, uh, which means an empire collective, which means it was these pockets of land, but each one had its own emperor, but they had to stick to their strict boundaries. But Julius Caesar was a man of passion. He was a man uh, of power. He was a man who wanted to leave the biggest legacy of all time. And so he had this moment in which he decided, either I need to go conquer some of my fellow emperors and take their land for myself if my legacy is going to live on. And most of these uh, little mini empires had very strict boundaries. And the one for Julius Caesar was called the Rubicon, the Rubicon River. And if he were to cross over the Rubicon, which was kind of like just like a stream, it wasn't like the Mississippi River, but if he were to cross over the Rubicon with his soldiers, it would not have only been an act of civil war, but at the same time too, it would have instantly put his army on the offensive because they gave them no place to retreat. And so what did Julius Caesar do? He made the decision that in order for us to move ahead, we will cross the Rubicon saying that either life or death is the only way out of this battle. And that's where we get the phrase today to have a Rubicon moment or to cross the Rubicon. In the year 1519, Hernan Cortes was sent by the nation of Spain to explore what they thought was an uninhibited part of southern Mexico. And upon his arrival, he was tasked to explore the land and to send back any riches or treasure that he found. But as they came around one of the peninsulas, what they actually saw was not only does this land have indigenous people, in fact, they had boats and weapons and they were ready to fight. And so Hernan Cortez had to make the decision, either we turn back now or we turn this exploration into a conquering conquest. Now, we're going to say, we don't necessarily affirm or agree with what Hernan Cortez did, but as they pulled their ships close to this natural harbor, he took a page out of the art of war by Sun Tzu, and he turned to his captains and he simply said one phrase. He said, burn the ships. Burn all of our ships down, because either we return home on theirs, or we die trying. Burn the ships. Alex Honnold is probably not a, game, a name you might not recognize, but you might know his story. Perhaps you've seen the documentary called Free Solo. It's about this man who decided to climb El Capitan in Yosemite National Park. It's a 900-meter flat-faced rock. And he decided not just to do it, because plenty of people have climbed El Capitan, but he wanted to do it without help of another person and also without any ropes. Sounds stupid, if you ask me. But during his training, he, he gave his, uh, his trainer one specific rule. He says, I want you to get me ready in a two-week window. 
And then at any point in that two-week window in which you know I'm ready and the conditions are right and we're just out there for what seems to be a normal training day, instead, just give me the phrase, drop the ropes. Because he said, if you tell me the day that we're going to have it and the day it's going to happen, chances are I'm going to psych myself out or ask for you to come along with me or take some ropes just in case. So he says, if I'm going to do this, I cannot have any other option but for you to just say, drop the ropes, and for me to reach the top. So what about the disciples that Jesus called? Right before Jesus started his three-year ministry, he was gathering this this ragtag, blue-collar group of adolescent young men to be his cornerstone in his ministry, to be the men who would kind of set the pace and the standard, this idea of the gospel, the savior of the world. He's like, he, he chose 12 essentially teenage boys to come along with him to see what he did, see what he taught in order for them to be the cornerstone. And in Matthew chapter four, there's this interesting uh, uh, way that Jesus calls them. Matthew chapter four, starting in verse 18. Jesus has this interaction with them, and it goes like this. He says, Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers. Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets behind and followed him. Cross the Rubicon, burn the ships, drop the ropes, leave the nets, Jesus said. Leave the nets. It's no surprise, and and whether we like it or not, that oftentimes the, the best way forward in commitment is to leave no other option to leave the nets behind. And the interesting thing is, as Jesus catches up with these disciples and they're doing their thing that they've done. They've done the thing that their their fathers have done. They've done the thing that brought their careers, they kept their families, kept food on the table. They were doing the only thing that they knew and they were doing their thing. They were just casting their net and bringing it back, casting the net, bringing it back in. And Jesus comes and all he says is he says, hey, follow me. And they don't know a whole lot about Jesus at this point. There's rumors about this guy claiming to be the savior of the world who seems to have an idea of something a little bit different than they heard before. And they come to the conclusions themselves that in order for us to follow Jesus, we have to leave behind everything that we know. We have to leave behind our jobs. We have to leave behind our families. If we are going to follow Jesus and become not just fishermen, but fisher of men, We have to give ourselves no other choice. They didn't take their nets with them. They left them behind. And for three years, they followed Jesus. And for three years, they witnessed firsthand his teachings and his miracles. And for three years, they saw when his anger burned and how his compassion flowed to the outcasts and to the widows and to the orphans and the women and the children like no other leader before. And for three years, they witnessed his teaching that made it crystal clear that if you want in, if you want to be a disciple, You've got to leave those nets behind. And then after Jesus died, he took his final breath on the cross, paying the price of of anyone who believes in him to carry the debt of our sin. 
The disciples do the one thing that they probably knew that they shouldn't. They go back to their nets. They go back to the old way of life. And the story goes, as they're casting their nets, having not a whole lot of success, after Jesus and his resurrected body comes to them, is like, what are you guys doing? Didn't I show you a better way? Didn't I show you a greater way of life? Didn't I give you purpose that far exceeds what you know with a stupid net? No offense if you're a fisherman. What are you doing? And again, they took their nets and they left them on the shore to fulfill that call to be a disciple. But when I think of my life following Jesus, where I get into snacks, I know where you get into snacks, is we try to follow Jesus and drag our nets along with us. So my question for you is, is what net might you need to leave behind to give yourself no other choice but to grow, to be transformed by the power and the spirit of the living God through the knowledge of his word through the community of faith called the church this year like never before. A couple options maybe that a net you might be dragging with you today. Number one is maybe you have a net of excuses that you need to leave behind. That should be Totally candid. I am a very, very good excuse maker. Like if you need a reason to not mow your lawn on a particular day, I got you, boo. Okay? If you need a reason to justify watching just a little bit more TV, hey, it just, it just does it automatically, right? I, I didn't have time to find the remote to say, no, no, go ahead, stop. You know, you know, it just, it just, and once the show stop, starts, I, I, I got to see it to the end. I'm a person of commitment, right? If you need excuses of why your faith hasn't been what you need it to be or you think it to be or where Jesus wants you to be, trust me, I got those in abundance for you as well too. And sometimes our excuses aren't bad. Let's, be, let's call it for what it is. Not every excuse is, is a bad an excuse. Sometimes they're logical. Sometimes they're, they're, they're reasonable to some degree. But an excuse is still an excuse. There's this man who comes up to Jesus after the Sermon on the Mount. So in Matthew chapter 8. And this man comes up to Jesus. He says, I I believe you to be the Messiah. I believe you to be the Son of the living God. I want to be your disciple. I will go wherever you go. I will do whatever you call me to do. And Jesus is like, rad, let's go. Saddle up, bucko. We're leaving right now. And look at how this interaction with this man ends, though. Matthew chapter 8. It says, there's another uh, disciple said to him, Lord... Let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me. Leave the nets and let the dead bury their own dead. In this world, in the ancient Middle East, burying your father was the greatest excuse you could ever have. Because for an entire year, if not more so, it was allowed to cover any of your other responsibilities. You didn't have to show up to work. You didn't have to go to, go to, go to the, to the religious service and, and, and do your atoning sacrifice. Like for an entire year, you didn't have to do anything because you were in the state of bearing your father and in a state of mourning. And so when this man says, yeah, I want to follow you, Jesus, I'll go wherever, I'll do whatever, and that's maybe where your heart is too, and yet there's the, but let me bury my father first. 
That's his way of saying, let me get my, my life in order. Let me get my schedule worked out. Let me make sure I have enough money in the bank account. Let me get all of my affairs just nightly, t- nicely tidied up. Then I will come after you. How does that sound, Jesus? And Jesus says, let the bed dare their bed. Some of our excuses sound good and sound logical, but an excuse is still an excuse. What are some of the excuses that, that, that we sometimes make when it comes to, to committing our life to Jesus? Well, I would go to church today, but you've seen the weather out there. Four days ago, it said it was supposed to snow, so don't know if I can go. Maybe your excuse is, well, you know, Jesus, I, I know I'm supposed to, like, spend time with you. And the best time for me to do that is, is early in the morning. And I, and I would set my alarm clock a little bit early, 20, 30 minutes early. But then if I got up, then I'd be tired. And then I'd be even more tired when I get to work. And that's where I actually need to focus. So I probably, probably don't need to be doing that. Maybe your excuse is always your spouse or your kids. And everything that they have going on gets put on the schedule first. And if you have time that allows, then you try to squeeze God in. Maybe your excuse to to not following Jesus is your job. It's not wrong to work hard. It is not a sin to make money or make a lot of money. But some of us will say, God, you can have part of this, but I want to just hold on to this for myself. Because I can fix a lot of my problems if I just have this. Is that cool with you? Some of us, it's time to leave behind the net of excuses. Number two, your net might be what's called the net of control. I'm a firm believer that we all have an inner three-year-old that still lives inside of us. You were three at one point. You were probably a little punk too. It's okay to admit it. And you know what three-year-olds are like? Okay, if you don't know, let me, let me give you an example. This is what three-year-olds are like. I've got a, a daughter at home who just turned four, so she's basically still three. And this is what three-year-olds say. I'm like, ah! I do things my way. You don't get to tell me what to do. You're not in charge, even though you're the parent and you take care of me and you wipe my butt and you feed me all my food. I'm in charge. I created this game so you play it my way. I don't need your help, but unless I need your help, I'm going to scream and yell at you and tell you to come. And why didn't you help me sooner? And I want to be the one who does everything on my time and my, right? This is what three-year-olds sound like. That's a pretty good impersonation, okay? I'm just being honest. And some of us, we haven't killed off that inner three-year-old. We have control issues. And Jesus makes it abundantly clear. He says, hey, you cannot be Lord of your life and still claim that I am Lord of yours. And multiple of the Gospels, we'll read it here from Luke chapter 9, verse 23, but multiple places, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the biography of the life of Jesus, his thesis, if you will, of all of his teaching. It says this, he says, so he, so he turned to his disciples, Matthew, or Luke chapter 9, verse 23. If anyone wants to be my disciple, they must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. Well, Eric, that seems a little excessive. That seems a little verbose. Jesus was being like hyperbolic though when he said that, right? No. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross. Follow me. 
And what I think we, 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 we try to do is we try to hold on to our net of control by saying, God, you can have this over here and you can have that over there, but don't worry, I'm going to hold on to this for me. And, and sometimes that net of control, sometimes the net of control is our, is our jobs. God, you can have my Sunday, you can have part of my week, but, but when the money comes in, you don't get to tell me where it goes. You don't get to tell me. I earned it. I worked hard for that. So that, 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 that command to tithe, that command to be generous, sorry, that's not going to work for me. You can have everything else, though. We, we try to control things via our relationships. God, you can, have, you can have my week. Yeah, I will spend time in prayer and in the word, but my relationships, I get to control those. God, you don't get to, to, to tell me who I should marry and who is a wise person to do so. God, you don't get to define my sexuality and don't you dare tell me who and when I can and can't have sex with other people. You can have everything else. I'll give you my Sunday and I'll sing songs and I'll read your Bible, but you don't get to control my relationships or my sex life. Sometimes we have the control of our own sin, we think. God, you can have this and you can have that, but don't worry, I've got my own sin under control. I know it's powerful. I know it's like rust. It slowly decays, but don't worry. I've got it under control because I'm gonna try to be gooder this time. For some of us, it's time to leave behind the net of control. Jesus makes it painfully clear. Either I get everything or I get nothing. Net number three. And this is a net that I have carried before and carry from time to time. This is a net that you might be carrying with you today. And it's the net of shame. And the net of shame comes when Satan tries his hardest to hold you back and he, and he whispers those sweet lies into your mind, into your heart. God doesn't want you. You really think he can love somebody like you? After all you've done, after how many chances you've been given, do you really think he could do something with you? Do you really think he could heal that? And so then we carry around a net of shame. And sometimes the net of shame is our own doing. And we forget to sacrifice and give it over to Jesus. Sometimes, unfortunately, the net of shame is from other people forcing it back into your hand, saying, no, you have to carry this because you're the one who made the choice. So carry that and you better feel it. And some of us, we actually like the net of shame because we learn to adapt and idolize it. Because we think that if, if we just constantly feel shame, then we don't actually have to change who we are or do anything different as long as we feel, uh, feel full of shame along with it. But let me tell you, the way of Christ is not a way of shame. The way of Jesus is not a, a, a life being under bondage of, of sin or shame. The way of following Jesus is a life of freedom. Freedom from having to carry anything that weighs you down. Past, present, or future. Jesus offers you redemption, wholeness, and healing. And he's saying, don't you dare carry around that net that I abolished. In Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 8, one of the best chapters in all of Scripture, but in Romans chapter 8, he talks about this idea that we have life in the Spirit. Think about this, these passages against this idea of a net of shame. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 and 2 says, Therefore, there is now 
No, zero, zip, nada, zilch, condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, it who gives you life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Verse six goes on to say, the mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. Verse nine, you, however, are not in the realm of flesh, but in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even through, though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of its righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give you life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. If you can trust Jesus to conquer your sin and shame, what it comes with is immense freedom to live as a new creation. And Jesus says, don't, don't live as one, carrying around a net of shame when I have made you free. Live as one who belongs to me. So for some of us, it's time to leave behind our net of shame. This is why we're having this series. This is why we're doing what we're calling Commit 2023. Is that I believe, myself and our elders, we strongly believe that God is on the precipice of doing some undeniable, amazing things, things that are already happening, but things that he wants to do in your life and the life of our church. So here's what I wanna say candidly, is that I believe that you want to grow. And I believe that God wants to meet you there, to be your source, to be your power, but you can only receive that progress, you can only receive that growth if you leave behind the nets that you're carrying along with you. That we have to learn and figure out what it takes for us to commit to God just like anything else in life in order to see that success. Cross the Rubicon, burn the ships, drop the ropes, leave the nets. We have no idea what God can do through one moment, one week, one year of obedience but we also don't know what we might miss out on if we continue to drag our nets with us. That's because commitment and following Jesus always intersect. You cannot separate them, you cannot tear them apart. Commitment and following Jesus cannot be separated. The disciples didn't really know who Jesus was, yet they committed to follow this rabbi. He was up and coming, and he turned out to be exactly who he said he was. There was things that they were probably unsure about, things that they didn't know, and yet they still said, I will trust, and in faith, I will follow through. So here's what we want to do. I want you to get out this commit card that hopefully you got on your way in. If you didn't grab one of these, I encourage you to grab one on your way out. You can uh, grab one at one of the tables at Guest Central. But grab out this commit card for me, if you will. 
You'll see on one side it has uh, commit 2023 with these four areas that we have kind of hand-selected because one of the things oftentimes people say is, is Eric or, or our first pastors, whatever, I just want to know what it is that my next step is. So we've picked four areas that perhaps might be your area of commitment. But on the back side, what I want to talk about today is we are kicking off 21 days of prayer and fasting together as a church. So for the next 21 days, we want you to pray, and we've given you a little outline here, and Samuel's put together some phenomenal resources on the website on this card to say, you have questions about prayer, or what is fasting, how do I fast, what do I choose to fast from, we invite you to partake in this. Because we firmly believe you want to grow. We want you to grow. We want our church to grow wider and deeper. But we have to commit and we have to discern and figure out, God, through the power of your spirit, where are you leading me? So for 21 days, we ask you to pray every single day. We ask you to fast in some capacity. Maybe you're going to choose to fast for an entire day, multiple days a week. Maybe you're going to choose to fast from social media for 21 days. Maybe you're going to choose uh, to, to fast from media for a couple weeks. Because what fasting is, it's, it's taking something that we hunger for and intentionally removing it from our lives. And when we feel that hunger come in, to replace it with a hunger for Jesus. So you might say, maybe I, uh, I'm, I'm not going to do social media at all for the next 21 days. And some of you, your, ter- your toes curled and you're like, I don't know if I could do that. Uh. How am I going to get my news? How am I going to figure out what's going on in the world? And every time you reach for that phone, instead of turning on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or the other 17 of them, you pray or you read scripture. Maybe you say, every single Monday I'm going to fast for the entire day. And every time I feel hungry, I'm going to get on my knees and I'm going to pray, God, speak to me. Your servant is listening. So for 21 days, we ask you to pray over these four areas of where God might be calling you to commit and grow like never before. It might be something small. Some of you, you might be new to this whole faith thing. And so, so your spot of commitment is just to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to commit to connect. I'm just going to show up every single week. Come hell or high water, no matter if it's blizzarding or whatever's going on, I will show up to worship. Maybe it's a new thing. Maybe there's something that that you haven't taken that step yet. You've always said, I need to get in a group. I need to get into a group or a cohort. And it's time to actually be real with other people about where you are in your faith. Maybe it's just to finally serve for the first time. For the last three years, you've always said, I'll serve, I'll serve, I'll serve. But there's always something to kind of justify why you didn't have the time. So maybe it's something new that's going to stretch you. And for some of you, and probably a a very just small amount, some of you, hear me when I say this, because if this is you and this resonates with you, do not miss out. Some of you, what God's going to call you to do is going to scare the living daylights out of you. It's going to be big. It's going to be intimidating. And yet he wants to move powerfully through you. Maybe he's going to tell you to do something that you have no idea how that would work out, but you've clearly heard because you've spent the last 21 days praying and fasting, seeking from God, and he's going to tell you to do something unbelievable. And it scares you. But you have decided to give yourself no other choice but be committed to Jesus and his kingdom. Here's what I know. 
I promise you, if you pray and fast, if you commit to God, you will be blessed. You will grow. You will be changed if you commit. Church, it's time for us to leave our nets behind and see what God wants to do through us. Would you pray with me as we continue to worship this morning? Lord, we bow humbly before you, the power of your spirit. We thank you for the opportunity to gather. We thank you for each and every person here today who calls First Christian Church home, those watching online, those who are, who are traveling. Lord, we just thank you that we have an opportunity to worship you. Lord, may we be attentive to you. Give us the boldness, give us the steadfastness, give us the courage to seek you for these next three weeks, to really learn and to discern, God, where is it that you are calling us to be vessels for your kingdom? Lord, you might call us to connect with the church and others. You might call us to commune with you on a daily basis like never before. You might call us to community, to, to meet with others who are going to hold us accountable so that we don't just have head knowledge or heart change, but we have that helpful accountability. God, you might be calling us to contribute. And we're finally going to give up those, those nets of control or excuses to serve or to give financially for the first time. God, I don't know what it is, but we know that if we seek you, you will speak, and if we listen, we will hear you. Lord, lead us, guide us, call us in this season. It's your name that we pray. Amen.